Sooner or later, when sharing your Christian faith, you will encounter someone who just can't get past the doctrine of the Trinity. How can three ever be one? It defies logic. It's unscientific. I can't believe in three persons, one God. But for Christians, the doctrine of the Trinity is non-negotiable. How does a Bible-believing Christian defend this doctrine? Let's talk about the Trinity on today's edition of Craving Answers, Craving God. I'm Chuck Rathert with Aaron Miller. Aaron is the pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. Aaron, thanks for taking time to join us today. Thank you. Have you ever had a serious discussion with someone who just cannot get on board with Christian teaching on the Trinity? Yeah, uh, I had a one just recently, my daughter's birthday party. Uh, one of her friend's father was there, and he and I are good friends. And um, he's Christian. He's a member of a Christian church. Um, but he has, a, he has a real hard time with the Trinity. And it, depending on when I talk to him, sometimes he'll just say, I'm really kind of struggling with this. Sometimes he'll say, I can't believe in it. Uh, but that's, you know, how can, for him, he's actually a physicist. How can, the math is where he gets hung up on. As you respond to that, it, I think maybe you gave the more common response, and that is, rather than just saying, I don't believe in the Trinity, I can't believe in the Trinity, I think a lot of people say, I really struggle with that. Yeah. So does that mean uh, that there's somewhere in between, or are they just making a polite response to, I, I don't think I can get on board? So, yeah, some people don't be- just don't believe in it. Many Christians, though, will say they struggle with it, and some usually they mean, well, there's two ways that Christians struggle with the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, one way is, uh, like my friend, um, my daughter's friend's father, he struggles with it because it just doesn't make mathematical sense. And there's a certain sense in which, I mean, a lot of Christians will acknowledge that. Most of us, though, we struggle with it. For, for, the, for the Christians who do believe in the Trinity, they struggle with, like, what's the importance why is that? Oh, I believe in it. It's in the Bible, they might say, but I don't, like, as far as, like, what good does it do me? Um, people struggle with that. You know, what else doesn't make mathematical sense is the Red Sea parting with dry land in between or somebody changing ordinary water, H2O, into wine. Those things don't fit mathematical sense either. So is is it wrong to try to take the rules of of the physical realm and apply them to the spiritual realm? Is that the problem? Um, people don't, it's, it's going to be the same people that don't believe in miracles, that don't believe in the Trinity. I don't know if like arguing from, which this isn't what you were doing. I don't think arguing from miracles to the Trinity is going to work unless people believe in miracles. Um, so what was your question again? I'm just thinking that in this material world, okay, yeah, where yeah. we can measure and weigh and yeah, and maybe those measurements don't apply in the spiritual realm. Yeah, so um, I mean, the problem we have with that though is that Jesus, who Christians believe is the second member of the Trinity, is incredibly physical, and so the, the reality of Jesus is an incredibly physical historical reality. It's not necessarily a spiritual thing. Um, it's probably best. I'm not really comfortable with the distinction between physical and spiritual. Uh, if God is the sovereign Lord of everything, then he's the God of the physical and the spiritual as well. 
maybe more comfortable with saying, we just need to readjust the way we, th- actually, we need to readjust the way we read the Bible and um, see if we can get at the truth that way. Instead of trying to do it philosophically, that's one of the problems that uh, Christians, non-Christians have when thinking about the Trinity, is they try to think about it philosophically and not in the story of the Bible. Let me get your reaction to this. Let's say I'm sitting with a friend. We're not really talking about anything that has to do with religion or faith, but somehow the conversation heads in that direction. And my friend reveals that he doesn't believe in the Trinity. He calls himself a Christian, Mm -hmm. but he doesn't believe in the Trinity. And I say to him, well, then you're not a Christian. What do you think? I don't think I would ever say that to anybody unless they said, I'm not a Christian. I had a feeling you would respond to that. But I'd like to be direct. Yeah, we were having a conversation before we started recording. I mean, so people say that, and I have a hunch that their beliefs are actually more biblical than their official theology. So, um, you know, my uh, my friend I was describing, I, I'm convinced he's a believer in Jesus. He His official theology is not biblical. However... I think that his, what he actually believes in at the end of the day, what he believes in when he actually kneels down to pray, you know, to God in Jesus's name is actually, that's where his heart is really at. It's better than his official. When he, when he sits down and tries to be a physicist about the whole thing, he struggles. When he's actually trying to love his wife and his kids, when he's actually praying for God to help him, uh, you know, help his ankle to stop hurting or forgive him of his sins. He's actually a Trinitarian. I wouldn't say to anybody just because. Well, that, the other thing too is like, a lot of times we have a confusion between doubt and unbelief. Somebody, if somebody says, "I struggle with the Trinity" or anything, you know, I struggle with the uh, the humanity of Jesus, or I struggle if God can for, really forgive my sins. It's it's you know, it's one thing to doubt those. We all doubt those things. I I myself, if I sit down and like try and process Trinitarian thought in my head, I'm going to doubt it. But that's different than unbelief. So I, I, I don't know if I'd ever say to somebody, I don't think you're a Christian. But. Well, if a person is going to try to apply science to an understanding of doctrines like the Trinity or other Christian doctrines that seem to supersede science, are they ever going to get there? If, you're, if, if science has to help you understand the Trinity, then I think you've got a long road to go. Yes, I don't know. Like You're right. Mathematics is not the place to start. Reading the story is the place to start. And when you read the story, you see right away that the problem we have is not the problem we think we have. So in the West, the God that we believe in is the God of deism. It's the God of Greek philosophy. Generally speaking, you know, if you hear somebody thanking God at the Grammys or even if you hear Christians talk about God, typically the God we're thinking about is there's one person who's God. And even Christians, when they think about God, they think like that. That's not where the Bible starts, though. So, so here's what I'm saying. The problem that we have is that we take for granted that God is one, and then we struggle with how can that one God be three? You know, we, got, we believe that God is one, but like, how does Jesus fit into that? Okay, Christians believe he's God, but how does that work mathematically? The Bible actually starts the other way around. The Bible starts with the three, and then later on tells us, that that God is one. Um, and, and to say three, it's probably, that's probably putting too much on the story. But already in Genesis 1, again, not three, but you see this multiplicity 
of God. You see this, somehow there's this ebb and flow and give and take within the very nature of God. In Genesis 1.26, you see God saying, let us make man in our image. I think we've probably talked about this text in here before because it's one of the most important texts in the whole Bible. If you, so, so get, if you take out of your mind any knowledge of God, which of course is impossible, but play along with me at home. If you can take out of your mind any knowledge of God and just start with Genesis 1, the conclusion that you're going to come to is that God is more than one person. That's the conclusion you're going to come to. If you're reading along and you read in Genesis 22, for instance, and there's this uh, messenger of the Lord who comes to Abraham to tell him, don't kill your son. This is, I, I, I was testing your faith. That messenger of the Lord is sometimes in that, in that chapter referred to as the messenger of the Lord and sometimes actually referred to as the Lord. There's this notion that, that there's this multiplicity w- within God. And you get to Deuteronomy 6, and Moses says, the Lord our God, he is one. That's the new information. What we should be starting off with is God as multiple people. As Christians, we believe God is three people. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The new information is that that God is one, and that's what we should be struggling with. So the Bible also says that when a man and a woman are married, that the two are no longer two, but they are one. Yes. But they're really two. I mean. Right. So what's going on there? That's the closest we have. Now we're getting close to the heart of the matter. That's the closest that we have. I'm glad you brought that text up. Uh, Genesis 2, end of Genesis 2, uh, description of Adam and Eve, the two will become one flesh. Man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become, he and his wife will become one flesh. That's the closest language that we have in the Bible to something like the Trinity, which, on, you know, honestly, this is, it, it, this is a direct link to Genesis 1.26. So just a chapter before, God says, let us, I believe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make man in our image male and female, he created them. What's going on there is that the image of God is not me as an individual male. It's not my wife as an individual female. Primarily, individuals are made in God's image. But in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, the most primary manifestation of God's image is marriage. Now, again, you know we're all single at one point in time. Some people are always single. So most of us begin single and half of us end up single when our spouse passes away. So it's not that being married is the only way to be in the image of God. But one of the things it's saying is, is that community is what it means to be made in the image of God. Man and woman, so that, that verse you quoted at the end of Genesis 2, it's a, it's a description of uh, marriage. It's a description of married sex, two people becoming one person. Uh, they are literally one. Um, well, of course, like you say, they're two, but they're really one. It's best, I think, that if we're talking about math, strict math, you say that's two people. Somehow, together, that married couple is one. At that point, you got to leave math behind. Same thing with the Trinity. I think you start off with the three people. God is three persons. What does it mean that he, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one? I think it means something super similar to the verse you quoted in Genesis 2. It's probably not primarily a mathematical assertion that God is one. It's primarily a, a mystical union assertion, which I don't know if that clears things up for people. But also, um, I don't know if we're going to get into this. G- give me 30 seconds here. I know I'm running along with this answer. Sorry, Chuck. 
what this means though, is that who God is from eternity. And now I'm trying, what I'm doing now is I'm arguing for a belief in the Trinity. Who God is from eternity is relationship. When God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit decide to make humans, they don't make individual humans. They make humans in relationship, Adam and Eve. God makes his creation, it's good, until he notices that Adam is alone, and then he says it's not good. And everything that that involves, marriage, family, the community that's going to flow out of those marriages and those families, God created us for other people because God is eternally in relationship. Now, this is the um, um, 30 more seconds, if it's okay. Sure. My, my uh, response to my uh, friend at my uh, daughter's birthday party uh, was, if God is love, I wasn't trying to convince him either, but, but if God is love, how is it possible? How is it possible that God is love if he's eternal, but he's eternally one? If, if in infinity time, time past, he was the only thing that existed completely by himself, completely alone in the universe, not even a universe. He hadn't created a universe. How can he be love if he's by himself? And the answer is, biblically, he wasn't. First John 4 can describe God as love because he has eternally loved. And he doesn't need, he doesn't need humans. He made them because he, he wasn't lonely. He wasn't bored. He didn't need slaves like in the uh, Enuma Elish, the um, um, Mesopotamian epic where the, the gods created humans because they need people to do work for them. He created because he loved, because that's what love does. Father, Son, Holy Spirit loving each other, that love pours out to other people. They wanted people to love. You use the word convince in your uh, description there. So when you come into a conversation where you know, you're know not on the same page as somebody else. You're both Christians, but you have somebody who's struggling with the Trinity. Is it your job to convince them of the Trinity? Yes, definitely. And not just because it's described in the Bible, not just because there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all being worshiped as God in the New Testament. It's not just as, as a factual thing. It's because belief in the Trinity is the only way to really grasp what salvation is. The only way to really know and experience the joys of being saved by God is to believe in the Trinity. Um, you know, if you believe, if you, if you start off like the Muslims, if you start off with God, God's, God's identity is creator. He is not, his identity is not loving because you have to have somebody else to love. If you start off with his identity as creator, a couple things are going to happen. First of all, and this is a little bit philosophical, God needs me to be who he is. God needs a creation to be who he is. This He's is dependent. This is a Muslim viewpoint? Well, the Muslim viewpoint is that God is primarily the almighty creator, right? And I'm saying my viewpoint is, as a Christian is, if that's the case, then God is somehow less than God because he's dependent upon his own creation to be who he is. But leave the philosophy aside for a second. And this is where a lot of Christians struggle with their salvation is because they don't believe in the Trinity. I mean, they might, their official, again, their official theology might be the Trinity, but practically speaking, they, they, they don't live inside of it. If God is creator and if, if he is, that, that, in other words, if, he, if his identity is powerful one, 
then he can save me by forgiving me. Um, Michael Reeves uses, uses the illustration of, um, say you're pulled over by a cop for speeding. Uh, one, of a, one of two things can happen. Um, well, so, so the cop can pay you a ticket. The, the cop can give you a ticket, and then you can pay it off. Let's just say that's the, that's the main thing that usually happens to most of us when we get paid, pulled over for speeding. Okay, there's a legal sense in which the debt has been paid. You can call it forgiven. Is it really forgiven? Uh, probably not. There's not really a personal level there. Uh, but the debt has been paid. And so you're legally innocent at that point. You can't be charged for that that particular speeding event anymore. Most Christians think about their salvation in that way. The one God says to me, now I know it's because of what Jesus did, but that one God says to me, okay, your legal debt is cleared. But if God is eternally love, that's who he is. That's his primary identity is eternally love, eternally love. And the way that he has experienced that love is the father has always been a father and the son has always been a son and the spirit has always mutually shared that relationship with them. Then God as a father, the salvation is this, God sends his own son to make more children, to, to, to bind more and more human beings to his son so that he can have a relationship with them. Do you see the difference? Like the, the point of salvation is not just mere legal forgiveness of sins. That's where we Christians misunderstand the training. The point of salvation is reconciliation, restored relationship. But if God is not eternally the relationship God, then that's a flimsy thing that depends upon us to some extent. But it's not. It's eternally pure and holy and infinite, the love that the Father, Son, and Spirit have for each other. And when they pull us up into it, we can be assured that we just haven't had our sins forgiven, but the thing that our heart most deeply desires to be completely and infinitely accepted has happened. And that actually, the the Trinity is the only way that that can ever make sense, that that desire to be infinitely accepted and loved can can only find its fulfillment if there is an infinitely and eternally accepting and loving being. Wow, that's uh, pretty convincing, but I'm still struggling with the Trinity. And after listening to your argument, I go to my whole card, and that is, you know, Pastor, the word Trinity, it doesn't appear in the Bible. So that settles it. Yeah, I don't, I, I've actually never heard, I mean, Christians talk about that, and it's true. It's true, the Trinity, the word Trinity never appears in the Bible. I don't, most people don't who struggle with the Trinity don't really struggle with that the word Trinity doesn't show up. There's a lot of words that don't show up in the Bible. Superlapsarianism. Um, <laughs> Super what? Yeah. Theological words that don't show up in the Bible. Um, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of now, now you've stumped me. What else is there? I, I can't. There's a lot of theological words. About that don't show antinomianism. Up. There you go. That antinomianism. the only one I know. Yeah, that's a good one. Antinomianism uh, and any sort of proper name, right? You know, uh, Arianism, uh, Pelagianism, uh, all those things. None of them are in the Bible, but nobody would argue that Pelagianism is worth not talking about or that um, uh, antinomianism isn't a real thing because it's not mentioned in the Bible. That's sort of an elementary school understanding of the way language works. Well, here's another word that doesn't appear in the Bible, but appears in theological discussion, and that's the word modalism. Yeah. Now, maybe I understand it, maybe I don't. Here's what I think it is. So since scientifically, I can't, I just can't cram three 
individual things into one individual thing and, right. and have that make sense to my satisfaction. So how about this? Sometimes the God of the universe is the Father, mm-hmm. and then sometimes he's the Son, and sometimes he's the Holy Spirit. Yeah. But the three of them are never actually coexisting. It's just God in different modes. Right. Is that modalism? Yeah. And is and what's wrong with that argument? Uh, well, so, I mean, if you read the story of the Bible, it just doesn't work like that, first of all. So let me just give you just a, a – um, I'll start kind of with a baseline, and then we'll move back to theology. If you're reading the story of the Bible, it's clear that there is a give and take. Um, and God says, again, Genesis one twenty six, let us make man in our image, unless there's some sort of like um, infinite schizophrenia happening, which is even more dramatic when you, for instance, read Jesus's prayer in John 15 through 17, where he is crying out to his father or, you know, on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um What's going on there? I, I, I've actually yet to hear a good modalist explanation of Jesus's prayer life or of um, uh, Paul's descriptions of what the Trinity is doing, for instance, in, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 12. I just just a, a bald reading of the text shows that there's, there's a give and take here within the members of the Godhead. Theologically, theologically though, can I push this back to what I just said earlier? If... There is only one God. He is not eternally love. This particular modalist God is eternally confused, is eternally fickle. If he tries out, I mean, one, one common modalist telling of the story of the Bible is he tries out the whole father figure thing in the Old Testament, and then he does the more gentle son thing in the New Testament, and now he wants to be more spiritual in our age. Well, what kind of God is that to depend upon? I need a relationship. That's what I want. I don't just want my sins forgiven. I want a relationship with the infinite. But if he's changing his moods or his modes all the time, how dependent is is that? And on top of that, again, if there's just one, how can he be described as love? He is not infinitely loving. He's loving because I exist. He created me in order to love me. But the Bible insists that we as humans were not created in order to love. We were created because of love. He didn't need us to love. He already had infinite love. He created us. You know, it's like you have, you know, a married couple. Again, let's go to that two become one flesh, which most people don't have a problem with. They don't have a problem understanding that two human beings can mystically become one in marriage. You know, why did you, uh, you know, why, why did we have kids in our marriage? Was it because... We needed people to love. No, you already had a spouse to love. Was it because you were lonely? No, you already had a spouse. Was it because you were bored? No, that's a really horrible way, a horrible reason for having kids. Anybody who's had kids knows that uh, being bored is a bad reason for having kids. Uh, is it because you needed servants? No, anybody knows that the financial output it takes to raise a kid can never be offset by any amount of work that kid can do to pay you back. Why is it that you have kids? It's because that's what love does. The love that spouses have for each other naturally overflows into this desire to create. Also, it's not just the kids. It's community. It's family. My wife and I have super close friends. And what we experience with those friends is an overflow of the love we have for each other. There's something stagnant and stilted about, I mean, I know it's cool when you're first dating somebody and you're totally into them. You know, it's just me and you and there's nobody else in the world. 
th- th- you can't exist like that for very long though before it becomes sickening, not just to people who see you acting that way, but to, but to each other. That love longs to spread out and flow over into other people, whether it's kids or friends, especially as a Christian. I'm a huge believer in Christian community. That all goes back to a Trinitarian God who is in community. Is, yeah, in community eternally, eternally. And it, modalism just isn't going to work. That's not his, his identity. Can't be love then. It can be creator. It can be almighty. It can even be holy. But again, holy is dependent upon an unholy creation. Holy means to be, you know, to be separate. For him to be, for his ultimate identity be, to be holy, he has to be eternally separate, which that means he needs a creation to be holy. Love is the one thing that he can eternally be because, like you said, he's eternally in community. There are people who say they believe in God, but the obstacle for them is they just cannot accept Jesus as God. We have organized denominations who rest on this perspective. The God that we call the Father is God in their eyes, and Jesus is something less. He's bigger than we are, but he's not on the same level as God the Father. And then there are people who are not at that level of sophistication when it comes to thinking it through, but they say things like, "Uh, Jesus was a great teacher. He was a very good man. He's a great role model. And they also want to underplay his divinity. Yeah. If you're going to do that, then you can't have a trinity. Right. Because the second person of the trinity is God, and we would say that is Jesus. So do you think that the trinity is encountering, or I shouldn't say is, has always encountered difficulty for some people just because they can't put Jesus on the same level as God the Father? Yeah, obviously. So this is where the Unitarians are at, right? Obviously, if you can't if you if you can't believe that a human can be God, then you're not going to believe in the Trinity. And what you're left with then again is not salvation. That's the thing. Remember, salvation is to be pulled up into the life of the Trinity. That's what, this restoration of eternal community. Again, so the Lutherans and the Reformed and the Methodists and, and the rest of us Protestants, we we a lot of times focus on legal aspects of salvation, which I'm not saying are not important. They totally are forgiven sins. But at the heart of salvation is not forgiven sins, but forgiven sins for the purpose of reconciliation. Um, It's like, I'm going to read a text here. This is just classic from John 17. Jesus prays to his father in John 17. He prays that, that all of us, all humans may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that's Trinitarian language, that they also may be in us. That's what Jesus, this is right before Jesus is going to the cross and going to be raised from the dead. His prayer is like, God, what you and I have in the spirit, the Trinity, that eternal unity. I'm doing this so that they can have this too. Later on, he says, I pray that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Again, so this is like, this is, so you have three examples of the multiple be- being one. You have the Trinity, you have marriage, the two become one flesh, and then you have here that all of these people may be one, which Paul, by the way, in Ephesians 5, bonus material here, says that's what marriage is about. The mystery of husband and wife becoming one flesh is a- actually the mystery of Christ's love for his church. So that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you love me. Later on, he says the love... Um, uh, I will continue to make known the love with which you have loved me, that they may that, that that it may be in them and I in them. So 
if you, if you want salvation, if you want to be reconciled to the infinite, if you want to be pulled up into the mysterious heart of the universe, the ultimate reality, it's going to take Trinity. A Unitarian view of Jesus not being God is going to live, leave you with a wise teacher, like, like you just described. Okay, that, I think Jesus is a wise teacher, but if that's all he is, then all I get out of him is information. All I get out of him is directions. My problem, though, and I think all of us know this when we look, our, look at ourselves in the mirror, is that that is a, an enlightenment solution to a cosmic problem. The notion that education fixes things doesn't work. We should know this by now. We're, we're, how, how many years are we into uh, education is going to fix the racism problem? Education is going to fix the poverty problem. Education is going to solve war. We don't need a Jesus who educates us. We need a Jesus who pulls us up into the relationship that we all crave to be in and unites us in that relationship. If, if we are pulled up into this eternal, infinite love fest between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and included in it as fellow children with Jesus, then racism is going to be solved. If my brothers and sisters of color are also brothers and sisters of Jesus, then there's no ground for racism. The war problem is going to be solved. How can I fight against my sister or brother that is also sitting in the lap of Jesus in the middle of the Trinity in this moment? But if all he is is an educator, I can take him or leave him, or I can learn from him. I can learn information from him and then not be changed. The Trinity is the only way to solve the problem which we all know needs to be solved. Can I ask you just one more quick question? And let's try to be brief. We have the so-called ecumenical creeds, mm -hmm. the three ecumenical creeds. People go to church are very familiar with the Apostles' Creed, perhaps the Nicene Creed, and then the less familiar Athanasian Creed. If you read those, it's pretty obvious that they're Trinitarian. Yeah, for sure. They are boldly Trinitarian. Yeah. So these go back to the earliest right. centuries of, of Christendom. I guess we've been having this discussion or this argument for a long time. Do those creeds, is that the purpose of those, primary purpose of those creeds is to defend the Trinity? Uh, yes. Well, so yes, their primary purpose is to defend the Trinity, but for the purpose of humans being saved. That's actually the main purpose, not just to defend the Trinity because it's right, but to defend the Trinity because it's the one way of salvation. And, and you, you'll notice this when you, when you read the creeds, they begin with, they don't, they don't believe that they don't begin with, I believe in God, the Holy one, or I, I, I believe in God, the almighty one. They don't, they don't begin with, I believe in God, the creator. They believe in, they, they begin with, I believe in God, the father, and then they go maker of heaven and earth. Because that's fundamentally who God is. He is always and eternally Father. Jesus is always and eternally God the Son. So that's what they begin with because that's the only hope of salvation. The rest of the stuff is pointing us to realities. You know, he's the creator. Jesus is the redeemer. Jesus is the God-man. The Holy Spirit is the one who enlightens. Um, the Holy Spirit is the one who brings a forgiveness of sins and, and empowers the resurrection. All of that stuff is super important, but only if you start with this eternal, infinite relationship between Father. They are always Father and Son. If that's the case, then I have hope. I can be a child of God too, because the Son has come to make me his brother. If not, though, that, that's why the creeds start that way. It's, it's mainly to save us. Well, we probably have some skeptics listening to us. I wonder if we've convinced anybody. I wonder if we've affected their thinking. Uh, we hope so, because that is the purpose of our program. 
We want to say thank you to listening to or for listening to Craving Answers, Craving God with Aaron Miller. He is pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. We encourage you to share your questions and comments on our website at stjamesglencarbon.org, particularly here on the Trinity. Just click contact us and leave your message there. I'm Chuck Rathard. Thank you for listening.